Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. in Genesis chapter number 33 is where we're going to start picking it up, where we left off last week in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis. We'll probably be here next Sunday. I'm going back and forth on my Christmas series. If it's going to end up being uh, uh, two Sundays, three Sundays, I'm, I'm working on it, so we'll see. We're going to do at least a couple of Sundays of Christmas messages, but we'll figure out. Um, it'll just be a, a Christmas surprise, I guess, uh, if we'll still be in Genesis next week or if we'll pick it back up the week after Christmas. Uh, but we've been walking through through studying the life of Jacob. And as we begin this morning, I want you to answer the following true or false statement. Not necessarily out loud, but maybe in your head. Answer this statement, true or false. Life will get better if I follow Jesus. And I would say true. It will get infinitely better if you follow Jesus. If you follow Jesus, you'll find a purpose that you didn't know before. You'll find a peace You'll find a joy, you'll find forgiveness, you'll find uh, significance, an identity that this world could never offer. If you follow Jesus, your life will get better. Second true or false statement, life will get easier if I follow Jesus. To that I would say, not necessarily. There is a common fallacy that creeps into all of our minds That the closer I get to Jesus, maybe the more money I'll have, the easier my life will get, the more comfort that I'll have, the less problems that I'll have, the less heartaches that I'll have. And by the way, there are preachers and churches across the country and around the world that will preach exactly that. We call that the prosperity gospel. And by the way, some of those preachers have the largest followings that come to hear them. Why? Because everybody would love to believe in a message that I can figure out the way for my life to get easier, for my life to get wealthier, to guarantee that I never have sickness or a problem or a burden or a challenge. So it's a very popular message with some. And by by the way, humanly speaking, it makes sense to us, doesn't it? Is Jesus good? Yes or no? Does Jesus do good things? Yes or no? Is God always good? Yes or no? So humanly, we think, well, then if I follow Jesus, if I give my life to God, the closer I get to Him, the more good things, the problem comes in what we define, humanly speaking, as good. Because the Bible does say that we know that all things work together for good to them that are, uh, to them that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, but it makes human sense. So if, if I think that more stuff or more blessing or more health is good and I follow God who is good, then I'll get those things automatically. I would suggest and ask to you, ask you to answer this question. Did Paul's life get easier when he decided to follow Christ? Paul had a pretty good gig going. He was high up in in the religious world. 
He was a Jew of the Jew. He was a ruler of the Jews. He was putting people to, everywhere he went, people were scared of him, and he was the one in charge. He consented to the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Paul had a pretty good thing going, and God stopped him in his tracks on the road to Damascus. Paul got saved. He gave his life to Christ. He went to begin to preach Jesus. Chase, your grandparents I met from San Antonio. We welcome you this morning here to Liberty. And that was another one I want to mention. Sorry, my brain does that. Uh, but, but Paul, he got stopped in his tracks. He gave his life to Christ. Did his life get easier? No, shipwrecked, stoned, beaten. He was misunderstood and lied about. What about Jesus' 12 disciples, the one that followed him the closest? Did all of their lives get easier? They were hated, misunderstood, eventually martyred. And I want to say this morning, if we understand Scripture, Following Christ, being a follower of God, doesn't mean our life always gets easier. Why? Because we have an enemy. We have internal struggles in our own lives. We have a sin nature. We sometimes face consequences of our own choices. What did Jesus say in Matthew 16, verse number 24? Then Jesus said unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his what? His Disneyland season pass. And take up his what? His, his unlimited, you're getting it wrong, all right, folks? I'm trying to answer it the wrong way, all right? His unlimited uh, uh, investment accounts. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Doesn't sound like following God always makes our lives easier. What did he say in John 15, verse 20? And I know this doesn't sound like the most exciting, encouraging, heartwarming Hallmark Christmas message this morning, but it's scriptural. We're going to see where we're going in Genesis 33 and 34 this morning. John 15, verse 20, Jesus said, Remember that a word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 2 Timothy 3, 12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. My message this morning is this. It gets better but not always easier. It gets better, but not always easier following God. And by the way, I think if you know me, if you've been here for any length of time, I'm not a pessimist. I'm not a, half, a glass half full kind of guy. I love my life sitting on my desk as a little placard that says, live in the dream. I love the life God's given me. Following God is full of amazing, abundant blessings and provision and more than we could ever imagine and more than we ever need. I believe all of those things. But I do think as we're going to come to our, our passage this morning, it's good to remember because here's what happens sometimes. If we get in our mind, well, I gave my life to God so everything should get easier, then when, if that's our expectation, then when it doesn't, guess who did something wrong? God did. And so if God didn't give and he didn't fulfill what I expected him to fulfill, then, well, I tried that Christian thing. I followed Christ and this came in. How could he do that to me? And if we don't understand the scriptural truth, it can lead us to get disillusioned with God and with his working and his ways are not our ways. His, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and we don't understand. We're studying Jacob's life two weeks ago. We saw in uh, Genesis 31, I think it was, maybe 32, um, we saw Jacob's Jacob, one of the patriarchs of Israel, I don't have the time to go through all the backstory, but one of the fathers of Israel, Abraham's grandson, Jacob had a face-to-face -face meeting with God. Remember that? They wrestled all night, and do you remember his identity-changing, transformative experience? No more Jacob, no more supplanter, overreacher, deceiver, but Israel, you're a prince with God, and we saw God gave 
gave him a new identity. You're not what you used to be. You have a new purpose. You have a new future. And aren't you glad? I'm still glad that the God we serve is still giving people a new purpose and a new future. And you don't have to be defined by what you were. God can make you what you are not. He can give you that new identity. And we saw that two weeks ago. And then last week, we saw a message, what should change in us? We saw after his transformative interaction with God, his experiences, meeting God face to face, what changed in Jacob's life? And I told you that if we're following God, some things should change in our life that we talked about progressive sanctification. And so as things are changing in Jacob's life, we saw last week that he became more generous. He became more content. He became more humble. He became more honest. Jacob's following God, and he's doing some really good stuff that we haven't seen him do before. So now when we come to Genesis 34, I can't wait to see what ways his life gets easier. I can't wait to see what great stuff is waiting from around the corner of those good changes that he's made in his life. Let's look at where we picked it up, where we left it off last week. Genesis 33, verse number 17. Genesis 33, verse number 17, the Bible says, And Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built him a house. That's the key there. Built him a house and made booths for his cattle. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And by the way, that verse seems kind of innocuous. Kind of seems like big deal. So Jacob was leaving and he stopped there and built a house. But we're going to get there at the end of the message. When you understand where he was supposed to be and what he was supposed to be doing, this shows us Jacob is making decisions based on what is convenient, what is comfortable, what he thinks is going to make his life easier. He's making these decisions. Jacob is giving up the pilgrim life in search of an easier life. I didn't tell you that following God is always easy, but it's always better. And Jacob's looking for the easy way. Don't we all do that sometimes? God had completely transformed him, but now he stopped short of the promised land where God had called him back. Be careful about moving your family or making decisions solely based on convenience or comfort. They end up landing here for years, long enough for his daughter Dinah to grow into womanhood. She was around six when they stopped here. We have the map that we've shown several times in this, in this Jacob series. And he started down at the bottom left. He ended up at the top where it says Haran, Haran. That's where his fa- uh, father-in-law was. It's where he got his wife Leah. It's where he got his wife Rachel. A couple of weeks ago is when he left. And then he had that wrestling with the angel in the wilderness. That's when they changed his name to Israel. Last week, we saw him um, confronting his his brother Esau in that area around Peniel and down into Edom. So we're right there in the middle on the right. That's right where they were. And today we just read in verse 17, Sukkoth, right there, that little arrow. You're going to see the other arrow going to Shechem. That's going to come up in today's passage. So this is where Jacob is. He's left his father-in-law. He's left his wife's family where he had served for 20 years. He's supposed to be, we're going to get there at the end of the message. See the one that says Bethel in parentheses and if not, I know it's really small, so if you're back there, you're like, I can't see any of that. It's just, trust me, it's there, all right? And it says Bethel in parentheses. That's where he is supposed to be going, but he stops maybe 20 miles short and lands in Sukkoth, and there he builds a house. And again, it doesn't sound bad, but he just decides, you know what? I'm just going to spend maybe a decade or more of time just living the easy life instead of obeying God's plan and call on my life. Look at verse number 18, please. 
And Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, you see that on the map, which is in the land of Canaan when he came from Padanaram and pitched his tent before the city. Does that sound familiar? Pitched his tent. Where else do we see that? Remember Lot? Pitched his tent toward Sodom. Jacob pitching his tent toward a city of, of, of unbelievers, those that didn't follow God. Verse 19, and he bought a parcel of a field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, Shechem, an important name for a hundred pieces of money. And he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. It sounds spiritual. He, he says we're going to worship here, but he is worshiping in self-will, not in obedience. By the way, the Bible still says to obey is better than sacrifice. He stops to give a sacrifice. God, I'm going to do what I want, but I want you to know I'm still kind of remembering you, so accept my sacrifice. When he should have said, I'm going to obey. I'm going to go where you want me to go. I'm going to do what you want me to do. And so stick with me. We're going to walk through this passage and break it down. And then I... So here we are in verse, number, uh, in verse number 20. He erected an altar. He pitched his tent. We see that he has business dealings with a man named Hamor, Shechem's father. He buys a piece of land. These business dealings, no doubt, introduce Dinah, his only daughter, to the young man whose influence in her life and, and, and involvement in her life would be disastrous. So we see, we're going to break down this passage today of this piece of Jacob's story. I'll outline it for us. Number one, we see Jacob deciding. Jacob deciding, deciding to build a house when he should have just passed through, deciding to stay somewhere that he shouldn't have been, deciding to buy land and to associate with people that were not a part of God's plan for his life, deciding to pitch his tent and interact closely with those who did not follow his God or share his values. And and I just want to stop again and say here, parents, our choices matter. We're going to see it in a minute. Our choices matter. The priorities that we set impact our children's lives deeply. The things that we value affect our children deeply. Our choices matter, parents. His family never should have been here, and we're going to see what happened. He should have gone deeper back into Canaan as Abraham did, but but instead he stayed real close to the world. And parents, separation from the world and and the things of this world that are not pleasing to God matter. You have a God-given responsibility uh, to help guide and model those things for your kids. Our decisions have consequences. Nearness to wicked influences will always deeply impact and affect us. I want us to see a slide that I showed us a few weeks ago when we looked at Jacob's family that shows all of his children born to this point. Benjamin, the 12th son, would be, will be born in a chapter or so. But you see, here are the, uh, the 11 sons, and uh, you can see from Leah and Rachel all of these sons. What we did, these are the 12 tribes of Israel. What's not on here is the one daughter that we talked about on that Sunday. These are the 12 tribes of Israel, but there was one daughter. One princess born in smack dab in the middle of these thorns. One baby girl in the middle of all these boys. And you can imagine the house, 12 brothers and one sister. Jacob has one princess that belongs to Leah. 
and you see the four over here by Leah and uh, uh, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. Those are her four. Uh, those are her four brothers there that you see that she was born right there in the middle of, I believe, seventh of the the thirteen kids that were born. With that in mind, let's jump into chapter thirty-four, verse number one. And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Remember, what's the land? Where are they living? Are they living in a place where everyone's worshiping God? Yes or no? Are they living in a place where everybody's excited about the, th- and the values that Jacob's trying to instill in his family? Yes or no? And again, parents, be careful. Influences and and things that they do. She goes out. We don't know exactly what this means. Maybe she was friends and she was going out to spend time. Maybe she was interested in what's happening. But she goes out to spend time to see the daughters of the land. She goes out to see how they're living. And teenagers, may I just stop and say, sometimes teenagers that are brought up in Christian homes can feel like, well, my parents are trying to keep me from a bunch of stuff. Yeah, they're trying to keep you from a bunch of heartache and a bunch of mistakes and a bunch of things that's going to lead to regret and scars in your life. And why I want to go see what the sons of the land have to offer, and I want to see what the daughters of the land have to offer. Teenagers, be thankful that, that God has placed you in a family that is doing their best to bring you up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and stay close to those that love you. She goes out to see the daughters of the land, and when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. He takes her and forces himself upon her physically, what we would call today rape. Verse 3, and his soul clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the damsel and spake kindly unto the damsel. And Shechem spake unto his father Hamor, saying, get me this damsel to wife. So we see Jacob deciding. We see, secondly, Dinah defiled. We see his only daughter defiled by the son of the man he had bought land from. I'm I'm guessing maybe that interaction was the first time they became acquainted with the family or it was part of their acquaintance with them. And we see Dinah's life forever changed and, and, and he does a very sinful, wicked thing. And then from that, he does maybe what some might call has some level of honor to it. Okay, I've done something I shouldn't do, but I do want to, her to be my wife. I want her to stay with me. And in those days, of course, we understand it was arranged marriages. So he goes to his father and he says, Dad, whatever it takes, I want to marry that girl. Figure it out. I need to marry that girl. So we see Dinah defiled. And, and Jacob's choices opened the door for his daughter to be defiled. Again, parents, look where our choices are leading our family. She had begun to associate with those who knew nothing of the God of the Bible. Number three, we see Jacob despairing. Verse number five. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his cattle in the field, and Jacob held his peace until they were come. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out unto Jacob to commune with him. And the sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved, and they were very wroth, angry, because he had wrought folly in Israel and lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not be done. And may I, again, just stop and say to those of us that are married or unmarried, there are still, biblically speaking, some things physically that ought not be done. 
God has the physical relationship for the bonds of marriage. These things ought not be done in Israel. Why? Because they had the commands of God. Husbands, we ought to be faithful to our wives and wives faithful to our husbands. And single folks, save yourself for one man and one woman for life. And if you say, I've already messed that up, I'm not, you can't fix what you've done there from this day on, you can. And, and the, the brothers are angry. This shouldn't be named in our country. They've defiled us. They've disrespected our family. They've, they've, they've shaken their fist in the face of our God. We've got to do something about that. We see Jacob despairing, finding out the heartache, the pain, the tragedy that has come partly because of his self-willed decisions. Then we see Shechem deceived, the longest portion of the story. Verse number eight, so Hamor, Shechem's dad, Shechem's the one that defiled Dinah, Hamor communed with them saying, he does, I don't believe Hamor knows what his son has done based on the context of the story. He says, the soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter. I pray you give her him to wife. Can, can my son marry your daughter? Which again, by the way, in God's command, the, the Israelites should not have married those, the Canaanites. They were not to have the, when we say a mixed marriage, not a racial thing. We're talking about a faith thing. Unbelievers marrying believers, believers marrying unbelievers. That was against God's plan. So this was not supposed to happen. Verse number nine, and here's what he says. And make ye marriages with us and give your daughters unto us and take our daughters unto you. Now remember, Jacob has 11 sons. Probably he's wondering and trying to figure out who are they going to marry? God's promised me a great nation, so maybe this sounds good. Hey, you, you, you know, you, we'll take your daughters to our guys, and you can look in our city and find daughters for your sons. Let's, let's mix this thing up. Let's, let's, let's have a big marriage thing going on. Verse number 10, and ye shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade ye therein, and, and get, get you possessions therein. And Shechem said unto her father and unto her brethren, let me find grace in your eyes, and what ye sh shall say unto me, I will give. Ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I will give according as ye shall say unto me, but give me the damsel to wife. Again, understanding in this culture, as is still happening in some cultures of our world today, if a man wanted to marry a woman, there was a certain price or a dowry that they had to pay. And he says here, I, I want to marry your daughter. I want to marry your sister. Whatever price you say, I'll pay it. You just name the price. I'll pay it so she can be my wife. Now look at verse number 13. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father deceitfully and said, because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said unto them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised. That is the, a sign of being a Jew or a follower of God in this day. For that were a reproach unto us. But in this will we consent unto you, if you will be as we be, that every male of you be circumcised. Then will we give our daughters unto you, and we will take your daughters unto us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not hearken unto us to be circumcised, then will we take our daughter, and we will be gone. I don't have time to jump too deep into this, but again, the, even, even the fact that he's kind of, the circumcision was never intended to be the, the thing that made them true followers of God. It was an external symbol to show an internal attitude of the heart. And even here, they're saying, basically, by just doing some things externally, you can be accepted, but they weren't following the same God. 
And in religion today, there are still those that would say, follow our list of rules. Just do what we've told you to do, and that will make you a good Christian or a good follower of God, or you'll get closer to God. It was never about the external. It was always about the heart, and the external was an indicator of what was in the heart. And here's what they're saying. It doesn't matter if you really love God. Just go uh, make yourselves look like us, and then we can all marry. Now, granted, Jacob's sons have no no intention, we're going to see in a minute, of, of, of going through with this. They're just deceiving them, much like their dad. They must have learned uh, the fine art of scheming and deceiving from their dad, it seems. You're, you're following well along with me today, and we, we'll get through this, and then we'll, we'll, we'll give a couple thoughts to close. Look at verse number 18, and their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. All right, we got our deal. And the young man deferred not to do the thing because he had delight in Jacob's daughter and he was more honorable than all the house of his father. And Hamor and Shechem his son came unto the gate of their city and communed with the men of their city saying, these men are peaceable with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land. Behold, it is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters uh, to us for wives and let us give them our daughters. Only herein will the men consent unto us for to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised, shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? Only let us consent unto them, and they will dwell with us. And unto Hamor and unto Shechem his son hearkened all that went out of the gate of a city, and every male was circumcised all that went out of the gate of the city. So we see Shechem deceived. Here's the deal. You don't need to pay us any money. Just go have a medical procedure that's going to put you out of commission for a few days and convince every man in the country to do the same thing. And if you do that, we're good. You can marry our sons and we'll marry your daughters and we'll share all of our stuff. By the way, Jacob was very wealthy. This is going to add to their, to their city's uh, uh, budget a, a good bit of money. So they come, and the gate of the city is where you would enter in. It's where all the political dealings would be done. And so they come to the gate of the city. And, and they say, we need to talk to all the guys. Hey, guys, great news. Hey, the budget's looking great. We're going to have a lot of money. We're going to have a whole bunch of new ladies that you can look at for your sons to marry. We've got a whole new crop. It's, it's great news. Population's going to go up. All we need is for all of you to have this medical procedure if you're a man. I just need you to do that real fast. That's it. And, and it says they hearkened unto them. Now look at what happens. We see after Shechem was deceived, we see... We see the city of Shechem, or Hamor, as a representative, as the leader of Shechem, Hamor destroyed. Look at verse 25. And it came to pass on the third day when they were sore that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. And they slew Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword and took Dinah, took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their sheep and their oxen, their asses, that which was in the city and that which was in the field and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives took they captive and spoiled even all that was in the house. It's a reminder, Hamor destroyed. So what happens as they're all mending from their surgery, they're there, and, and ladies, you know how men can be when we get sick or have surgery, right? It takes us a while. you got to bring us the soup and the, the remote, the clicker. You know how it goes, how we just lay there? Anybody, ladies, you know what I'm talking about? Any ladies out there know what I'm talking about? 
So imagine the whole city. These ladies are like, get up. I'm tired of it. You know, they're just, they're crying and moaning. I need the Tylenol. I need some help. Come rub my feet. They're all sitting there. And while they're there on the third day, the Bible says, two of Dinah's brothers come with their swords and they bust into every house and kill every man. By the way, this is not justified or commended by God. This was not the way to deal with this. But they were dealing in flesh, fleshly anger and wrath. They kill all of the men. They take the women and children who are heartbroken. They've lost their husbands and their fathers. They take all their stuff. They take all their wealth. And, and it's a reminder here that sin destroys. It destroyed Shechem's life. It destroyed his dreams. It destroyed his family. It destroyed his people. Sin always destroys. And we see in the last two verses of the chapter, Jacob's dismay. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and I being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. And they said, should he deal with our sister as with an harlot? Dad, you just going to let her do that to Dinah? So we have Jacob's dismay. He basically says, they're going to come kill us now. What have you guys done? You've, you've given me a bad reputation. And, and I want to stop and just right here, really, we went through it kind of quickly at the beginning, but the tragedy, what do we see? Jacob, he's had transformation, he has a new identity, he's made some great changes in his life, and yet there were still some of the consequences of his previous choices that came to roost. Following God is better, but it's not always easy. He's now dealing with great heartache. Why did I do that? Why, why did I stop here? Why did I ever get involved with Hamor? Why did I ever let that happen? I should have been more protective of my daughter. I should have been wiser about where we lived. I probably shouldn't have built that house. I should have followed God. And we're going to go back. By the way, it's not like this was just an accident. Jacob knew where he was supposed to be. We're going to see it in just a moment as we wrap it up. But I love number seven, the last piece of this story. We've seen here, we've seen uh, Jacob deciding to stop where he shouldn't stop. And then we saw Dinah defiled and Jacob despairing because his wife, his daughter has been defiled. We see Shechem deceived, Hamor destroyed. Jacob's dismay is of what his sons have done. By the way, when Jacob's on his deathbed, he still, if you read it in Genesis 49, he still has not forgiven his sons for the way they handled this. He's dismayed by the, the reactions of what his sons have done. But I love this and I don't miss it. I see, lastly, God's display of grace. Look at chapter 15. Would you read verse number one aloud with me? I'm sorry, chapter 35, chapter 35. Chapter 35, right where we were, verse number one. Right after all this happens, verse number one, would you read it aloud with me? Ready? Begin. And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God, that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. Bethel, Beth means house, El is short, it means Elohim, God. Bethel, house of God. Jacob, I know that your heart is broken. I know that you've gotten yourself in some bad situations. I know that your family will never be the same. I know there's blood on your son's hands. I know your, your daughter is scarred. I know all of these things. But Jacob, I'm not done with you yet. Get back to Bethel, God's display of grace. Look at verse number two. Notice this. Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him. What does it say? Would you read it aloud to the end of the verse from put away? Ready? Begin. 
Put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. What do we see? The trials of life, the heartaches of life. Jacob thought he could follow God in self-will and still have the blessings of God in his life, but it was the trials of life. It was somewhat the consequences of his own sin that caused him to realize. He said three things to his family. He says, we've got to get rid of the false gods that we've allowed to come into our home. We need to be clean and we need to change our garments. What is that? The daily habits of what we do. We've got some house cleaning to do. And by the way, nobody likes the trials of life and nobody likes the chastening of the Lord. But if we allow those things in our lives, the Bible says that in Hebrews, it's the chastening of God. It's, it's never in the present time joyous, but if we allow it, it can bring about the peaceable fruit of righteousness in our lives. And so sometimes in your life and in mine, there are some hardships that we walk through that are the chastening or the consequences of our own sins. And if we allow them to, they're really bad circumstances. But if we turn to God in the right way, God can use them to purify our lives, to help our families, to change us more into his image. He says, we've got to get rid of the strange gods. We've got to clean ourselves. We've got to change our garments, verse 3, and let us arise and go up to Bethel. That's a really important statement you're going to see because that's where they were supposed to be all along. And I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. The first time he met with God at Bethel was decades before when he was running from his brother Esau. Esau said, I'm going to kill you. He was running and it was there. You remember the dream? We preached on this maybe two months ago where the, the what we call Jacob's ladder, the angels were ascending and descending back and forth. It was there that he built an altar and he said, this is Bethel. This is where I met God. This is where God began to do a work in my life. I've got to get back to that place where I met God. I've got to get back to where God has called me. I've got to get back where God wants me. And if I'm going to do that, I've got to get rid of the strange gods. I've got to get rid of the idols that we've allowed into our family. I've got to get rid of my desire just for comfort and convenience in God. I want consecration no matter what it costs me. I've got to clean ourselves. God, would you forgive us? We've allowed some things in our life. We've done some things in our home that we shouldn't have. God, forgive us. And we're going to change our garments. Our daily habits are going to look different. God, you're going to have a higher priority than you've ever had. I've got to get back to Bethel. We've got to clean our garments. It's amazing how the difficulties and disappointments and heartaches of life have a way of reminding us what really matters. And help us see the things we need to change and get out of our lives. That which he had allowed in times of ease and comfort now needed to go in times of trial and suffering. His family needed to be cleansed. And if you've been saved for any length of time, you know at times it's easy to just get comfortable. To just grow complacent. We get used to some of the things of this world that aren't pleasing to God in our lives and in our homes. We go places we maybe shouldn't, and we, we interact in ways that maybe we shouldn't, and we talk to people in ways that we probably shouldn't. And we allow influences into our lives and into our families that at one time we would have said, oh, we've got we've to be separate from those things because they'll influence us. And we want to be close to God. We want to, be, we, want to, we want to get rid of those strange gods, those things in our lives that are taking our focus off of Christ. We need to be cleansed. In 1818, Ignaz Philipp Semmelweis was born into a world of dying women. 
The finest hospitals at the time lost one out of six mothers to the scourge of childbed fever. These doctors and everybody at the time just figured this is just part of it. Having a child is really hard, and so they were just okay with one out of every six moms that went to gave birth died in childbirth. Died of a certain fever, not of childbirth, but of a fever they called childbed fever as they were there working. And at the time, doctors' daily routines began in the dissecting room where they would perform autopsies in the morning before going about their way. And they would handle dead bodies, and then they would go, and, and they would go to do inspections and do different things and whatever to check on their patients that were getting ready to have children. They would never pause to wash their hands as they, as they examined expectant mothers. Dr. Semmelweis was the first man in history to associate such examinations with the resulting infection and death. In his career, after 11 years and, and the delivery of 8,537 babies, Dr. Semmelweis lost only 184 mothers, one out of 46, between 46 and 47. Everyone else was losing one out of six. Just by the sake of washing his hands, he took that to one out of 46 or 47. He spent much of his life lecturing and debating with his colleagues. He once argued childbed fever is caused by decomposed material conveyed to a wound. I have shown how it can be prevented. I have proved all that I have said. But while we talk, 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 gentlemen, women are dying. He said this, I am not asking anything world-shaking. I'm asking you only to wash. Wash your hands. But virtually no one believed him. Doctors and midwives have been delivering babies for thousands of years without washing, and no outspoken Hungarian doctor was going to change them now. Semmelweis died insane at the age of 47. His wash basins discarded, his colleagues laughing in his face, and the death rattle of a thousand women ringing in his ears. How many tragedies could have been avoided if they had simply learned to wash their hands. And may I say to us, as followers of God, how many tragedies could we avoid if we simply learned to wash our hearts? What does he say? We've got to get rid of the idols. We've got to be clean. We've got to change our garments. God deserves better. We've let some things in our family that led to tragedy here. We've got to do better. What do the psalmist say in Psalm 51? David, after, after committing a great tragedy in his life, committing the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, what did, he, what did David say? Created me a clean heart. God, would you wash my heart and renew a right spirit within me? Jacob allowed one of the greatest heartbreaks of his life to lead him to where, back to where he needed to be at Bethel to cleanse his heart and his family. Again, don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't despise struggles and difficulties. It may be those very things that God uses to cleanse and purify and wake us up. Go back to the house of God. What are our takeaways this morning? Number one, from this passage, Jacob being changed, and yet still some trials following God. Some self-inflicted and some others inflicted. Shechem did wrong. Even though Jacob allowed his daughter to be around there, Still, the responsibility lies on Shechem for choosing to defile Dinah. Number one, what do I see? Some takeaways from this passage of chapter 34. Number one, following God doesn't guarantee a life of ease. Following God, by the way, not following God doesn't guarantee a life of ease either. 
It's not like I'm saying, follow God and life stinks and don't follow God and life is great. No, life is infinitely better following God and, and not following God has many, many heartaches and trials and struggles and a lack of purpose and peace and joy and forgiveness of sins and eternal insecurity, not knowing what's gonna happen when I die. So don't get it mixed up. I'm not saying following God is terrible. What I am saying is it's good to remember just because you're walking through some heartaches doesn't mean uh, that, that God has forgotten about you. Following God isn't, doesn't guarantee a life of ease. In fact, the opposite, he said, take up your cross. Number two, I see in this passage, our choice have consequences. Be careful basing major decisions on comfort, convenience, or culture. What's everyone else doing? Don't underestimate the power of the influences you surround yourself with and your family with. Protect your family. Rachel had taken those idols from her dad. Remember that? She was sitting on the idols in the camel bags, and those were false idols. Those idols she had stolen from her dad decades, years before, were now infiltrating her household, her family, affecting her kids. Be careful about letting things into your marriage and your home that ought not be there as, as it relates to influences. Number three, our sins have consequences. Both eternal, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And they have eternal consequences, but our sins also have earthly consequences. Lust when it is finished bringeth forth sin, and sin, I'm sorry, lust when it is conceived bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. We can bring great heartache and pain here on earth in our own lives by the sins we choose to partake in. But I love number four, the fourth takeaway. Our God has inexhaustible mercy. There's nothing you've done that God can't forgive. There's nothing you're facing that God can't give victory over. There's nothing you've experienced that God can't use for his glory and your good in your life. I can't explain all of that, but that's the God that we serve. By the way, we're going to see as we continue to study that God does exactly that. He continues to use Jacob's life and family to bring forth the, the, the Savior of the world, the one we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus is going to come through the lineage of Jacob. Our God has inexhaustible mercy even when we mess up, even when we make bad decisions, when we do things we ought not to, God is a God, the Bible says, who's long-suffering, plenteous in mercy. Aren't you glad that he's plenteous in mercy? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Don't believe, well, I've just done too much. God can't forgive me where sin did abound. That means there was a whole lot of it. Grace did much more abound. It didn't say where sin did abound, grace matched it. It didn't say every sin you have, there's enough grace for it. It said where sin abounded, grace did. I like those two words, much more abound. God has inexhaustible mercy. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what heartaches and trials. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't despise it. I don't know what you're walking through, but what I'm telling you is God isn't done with you. I love what that speaker said here back in May. If you have a pulse, you have a purpose, God can take those things and he can work them together for your good. Don't, it's, it's not always easy, but it is better to follow God. And so my challenge to you this morning is to get back to Bethel, back to devotion, clean out the strange gods, the things that shouldn't be there. Get back to your first love. Do you remember when you met God? 
when you were running, maybe scared, confused, hurting, that place where God's presence was real in your life, get back to Bethel. Get back to that personal relationship with God. Put away your idols. Confess where you've gone wrong. Be clean. Change your habits. That which you wear daily. Change your garments. And if you're here this morning and you never turned to God and said yes to him, what are you waiting for? D.L. Moody said this, if God's today be too soon for thy repentance, thy tomorrow may be too late for God's acceptance. Boast not thyself of tomorrow. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll get serious about this tomorrow. I'll make these changes tomorrow. I'll accept Christ tomorrow. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Back to Bethel. And if you've never been to Bethel, get to Bethel. William Mason said, if we put off repentance another day, we have a day more to repent of and a day less to repent in. Let's get right with God today. Let's learn from Jacob here. Even after God has done a work in our hearts, there are still trials and troubles that we will encounter in this fallen world. There are still some consequences we may have to walk through, but no matter how much sin or sadness there is, there's more of God's mercy and love. How could Jacob have avoided all of this? Turn with me and read one more verse, uh, maybe uh, three more verses. Genesis 31. Go with me to Genesis 31. We're going to read three verses together and close it down. How could Jacob avoid all of this? Genesis 31, verse number 11. This is Jacob getting ready to leave his father-in-law. The angel of God spake unto me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and he said, here am I. And he said, lift up now thine eyes, verse 12, Genesis 31, verse 12, and see all the rams which leap upon the cattle are ringstraked, speckled, and grizzled, for I have seen all that Labeth doeth unto thee. Would you read verse 13 aloud? Ready? Begin. I am the God of Bethel, where thou anointest the pillar, and where thou vowest to vow unto me. Now arise, get thee out from this land, and return unto the land of thy kindred. Where was Jacob when he left his father-in-law supposed to go? Back to Bethel. He stopped 20 miles short and said, you know what? I just like a more comfortable life. It's easier to live in a house than it is a tent. It's easier to be in one spot than to keep traveling. It's easier just to, just to let it, just to do what I want to do. I'll even build an altar here and we'll, we'll give it to God, but I'm not going to go all the way back. And what happened? It took Jacob having great trial and heartache in his life for God to come back. Did you see it in Genesis 35, what we read today? Jacob, arise and go back to Bethel. I already told you this. What is it that you know you should be doing, but you've been putting it off? You know you should give God, but you've been putting it off. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of that next year, January 1st, New Year's resolution. I'll take care of that after, you know what, we've, we've got, once we get through this, once I get through college, once I get through this, once our, our kids are in school, then we'll get serious about it. Then once, once my kids get to high school, once I can get my kids off to college, once my kids get out of college, once I retire, then we'll do this. And we're masters of just staying in a land where we shouldn't be out of comfort and convenience. And God says, Jacob, you could have avoided all of this heartache, all of this death, all of this pain, all of this tragedy, Jacob, get right with me. We gotta get rid of our strange gods and get back to Bethel. Following God, it's always better, but it's not always easier. And sometimes we complicate it with our disobedience. Let's get back to that place where God was real to us.
that place where God was all we needed and all we wanted and all we desired. That place where he controlled every step of our lives. Let's get back to Beth. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.